All right. Well, today we're going to wrap up chapter three. Um, we're going to take a break. I, I won't be here next Sunday. And I believe um, our first, if I'm not mistaken, our first two Sundays-ish in the new uh, location at Cherokee Christian, there will be no um, adult Bible studies for those two Sundays. So there's going to be a bit of a, a transition period at any, at, you know, anyway because of that, that move. So just kind of gives you a lay of the land for the next uh, several weeks. But today we're going to wrap things up here in Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> and just by way of, of some reminders, some foundational reminders from our study up to this point, um, as you recall, this section of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, is known as primeval history. You have patriarchal history as the second uh, portion of Genesis beyond chapter 11. But uh, this section that we're in, in Genesis 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, is also termed primeval history, really about the origins of the universe, the beginnings of time and space, all the many firsts of human experience, such as marriage, family, the fall, sin, redemption, judgment, and the nation. So, this is the foundational origins of life and experience and human history um, as God has revealed it, known as primeval history. And we've been looking at these foundational chapters of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to frame that up in our minds in a clear way. Um, also, we noted that, <clears throat> that Genesis chapters 1 through 11, although it's often, uh, I guess, maligned by both um, unbelieving people as well as those who might uh, otherwise claim to be Christians, but uh, would view Genesis chapter 1 to 11 as mythological or borrowing from ancient Near Eastern stories, but not really historical narrative. And so um, we would adopt a, a position that it is historical narrative. In fact, um, it is a narrative that was given to Moses and it really represents the only eyewitness account of the beginning. Uh, when you look at Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 to 11, you see where it says, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So this, this idea, this, this principle of revelation, and really firsthand account of the beginnings of history, and the beginnings really the origins of of our world and the universe as we know it, uh, was uh, re revealed to Moses. We also talked about how everyone brings to a study like this, uh, particularly unbelieving people, but uh, us as well, we bring to it our own set of presuppositions, pre-conclusions, pre ways of thinking that uh, have already been established. No one comes to this kind of study with some uh, clean slate, where all they're coming to do is just objectively view the material and completely objectively, unhindered, uninfluenced by any other information or any other context, coming to this body of material and evaluating and analyzing with, with pure objectivity. No one does that. <clears throat> we talked about how um, what is most common presuppositions, what are some of the most common presuppositions for the unbelieving world is that man is the final arbiter of truth or man's ability to reason 
man's ability to look at a matter and analyze it within himself and draw conclusions based upon his own understanding of things is the final arbiter of what is true and what is false. We talked about how uh, science is often viewed as more accurately, or excuse me, science, or more accurately described as uniformitarian methodological naturalism is purely objective and therefore ultimately authoritative. So in other words, this idea of naturalism, that everything in the physical universe can and indeed must be explained by time, chance, and the laws of nature working on matter, we understand our world based upon what we can observe in our world in the natural environment. In other words, it's the removal of anything supernatural in terms of our acquisition of knowledge and understanding about the world that we live in. And then this idea of uniformitarianism, that natural physical processes have always acted in the same manner, rate, and intensity as we see operating today. That's what is behind a lot of the uh, conclusions that, that secular science would draw on origins, the origin of the universe, that, that naturalism is the order of the day, that you, you obtain your understanding of, of the order of things and how things came into being by just observing and analyzing and studying the natural universe as it currently is. And the way that it currently is has always been operating without interruption according to uniform principles, uninterrupted for, for eons and eons of time. And of course, we don't come at our understanding of origins like that at all. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, another presupposition of the unbelieving world about uh, the origins or primeval history or, or Genesis account in particular is that religion and its corresponding sacred texts and articles of faith are at best a soothing balm to pain and a, and to, a soothing balm to the pain and travail of life, and at worst, they're sources of intellectual delusion and social control. So again, any view of religion or religious faith is really just about human beings trying to ease their conscience. Uh, it's a crutch for their weakness or it's, a, it's some kind of balm to put on all the pains of life, that's, that's maybe the positive, quote-unquote, view of it. And, of course, the negative or destructive view of religion or religious belief or faith is that it's just delusional. It's intellectual suicide. Uh, or it's a means to control people socially and morally. So we, we moralistic Christians want to use our moralistic values and our and our knowledge of the Bible to control people morally, that would be kind of a conclusion that, or presupposition that often guides unbelievers in their view of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 in particular, and chapters 1 through 3 for our focus. Now, we talked about our presuppositions as Bible-believing Christians, first presupposition being this, that there is a God and we are not him. So we start there. We start with Genesis 1, verse 1. There is a God and we are not him. In other words, we're very comfortable with the idea that there is a sovereign, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good God, and our inability to fully grasp everything that he has done, everything that he has made, all the purposes and plans of the universe throughout time and eternity, our lack of ability to fully grasp and understand that, we're okay with that because we're not God. And if we could attain to that level of knowledge, then what do you have? What are you left with? What kind of God do you serve who is able to be completely circumscribed by the wisdom and intelligence of man? It's no God at all, right? 
So there is a God, and we're not him. Secondly, this God has revealed himself clearly and powerfully through his creation, through his word, and through his Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of illustrates this idea of progressive revelation, which is a, a key point that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Um, that, that, in other words, the scripture, themselves, the scripture itself does not progress from error to truth. It progresses from incompleteness to completeness. So when you see the unfolding of Scripture and God's purposes and plan and his redemptive plan, what you see is you see incompleteness moving to completeness. There are references to this in the New Testament. Uh, uh, The Apostle Paul calls it a mystery. It was once unknown, but now is known. Um, So there's this idea that, that revelation in the Scriptures is progressive in nature but that we also would acknowledge that the Bible is true, reliable, clear, and authoritative. So that's where we start in our presuppositions. So when we get to this final section in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced in this historical narrative to what are some of the most essential elements of salvation, actually. Now, This section in chapter 3, verses 20 to 24, is certainly not explicit, again, with the idea of progressive revelation being understood, that you don't see clear terms and principles being outlined about salvation as we now understand it with the progression of God's full revelation through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system, the law and the prophets, on into the New Testament, the coming of Messiah, the death and burial and resurrection of the Savior, and then obviously the epistles and revelation. We have all of that revealed to us, and so we look back on this with crystal clarity of God's redemptive plan and purpose as he's revealed it in the scriptures and most vividly through his Son. But we do see in Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24, very clear elements of salvation, or you might say, of God's redemptive plan, the prologue, if you will, of God's redemptive plan sort of beginning to be unfolded um, to us, uh, revealed to us. It's not explicit, but it's certainly clear. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read verses 20 to 24 to kind of get us started here. Verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, la- at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away, that, excuse me, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, of course... The backdrop of this, as you know, is the beginning of chapter 3, where uh, Eve is approached by the serpent um, and is uh, in, engaging in this dialogue in which she um, is led to uh, fall into temptation, partakes of the fruit, uh, gives it to her husband who is with her, gives it to Adam who is right there with her. He partakes, uh, and then they run and hide. God comes and, quote, looking for them. Um, and that confrontation between God and the serpent, and God, and Eve, and God, and Adam ensues, and then you have the curses that are, that, are, uh, that are spoken or declared by God, and that leads us to this section here. This section about 
this it's almost like an interesting um, shift. You go from this uh, this staccato communication of of curse to this sort of summary section here in the last part of Genesis chapter three, where we're introduced to this statement: the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It seems a little bit abrupt in the flow of the text. Um, to one degree or another, but it is a fitting conclusion, and it really is a fitting prologue or launch point into the rest of redemptive history, the rest of God's redemptive plan and purpose after the fall. So what we're going to see here, what we're going to try to identify are some of these basic elements, certainly not all the elements, uh, certainly not every uh, doctrinal point you could, you could raise up out of Scripture, but you'll see essential elements of salvation or God's redemptive plan um, unfold here in this text. The first one that I would call your attention to is the principle of faith or man's response. Man's response to God. Now in verse 20, this, this statement here that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, we, we see from this an indication that, that Adam is believing in a future purpose and plan of God. Adam is, is there, there's been a, remember there was a, a transfer of trust, a shift in belief from God and trusting his word and his abundant provision and even his prohibitive command to be good and right and wise to a trust in the serpent and his lies about what would be gained and what would be benefited to uh, Adam and Eve, if they were to disobey God. And really, the idea being there that God was kind of ripping them off and he was holding something back. But now, we see this shift back to a trust in God and his promises. You'll note that in Genesis 1.15, as part, even as part of the curse, and we've talked about this before too, how even in the midst of, of um, this whole Genesis 3 narrative, where you have this devastating epic event in history that radically transformed the experience of man and the relationship of man to God forever going forward, right? You have this massive event, but even peppered throughout that, you see uh, indications of God as a saving God, as a pursuing God, as a God who has mercy and grace on sinners, and we're going to see that here as well. Well, you'll remember in that, in that part of the curse where uh, he is, uh, God is speaking to Eve in Genesis 1.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and she shall bruise your heel. Excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you have this, this forward-looking statement by God that there is a future and there is a future promise of even judgment and defeat of the enemy of man's soul. And even before that, in Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, I, said, I said 115, I meant 315, I'm sorry, Genesis 315. But then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, you had the, 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 the declaration of God that God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there was a sense of continued or return, renewed trust in God and his promise and his command, really his, his image of God kind of command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the context of Genesis 1.28. And so there's this, there's this indication that, that man has returned to 
a trust in God and in His Word and His promise. And the naming of Eve, that she would be the mother of all the living. That, that these things are going to be fulfilled. That this is not the end. So there's this, this element of faith and trust that's being uh, indicated at here. But you also have uh, the idea of atonement in this section. The idea of atonement, which really is about God's provision. It's what God does in, in salvation. In verse 21... It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, prior to this, what had they done to try to cover their, their shame and their nakedness? What did they use? Fig leaves. Now, a fig leaf is certainly not an adequate covering. If you think about the introduction of um, decay and the, the effects of the fall, um, it's certainly not going to last. Um, it's certainly not going to be a sustainable covering, but it's also the kind of thing, if you think about it, that it's, it's, it's the kind of covering that, that they would just be able to take and continue to kind of co- try to keep covering themselves over and over again as it would be, continue to prove itself inadequate. So you have this image of, you know, uh, fig leaves, and so these, these are no longer effective, so I'm going to have to get more fig leaves that are growing and I take the fig leaves, and then there are more fig leaves that grow back, and I have to keep this process up. So you have this imagery of, of continual but futile effort to cover here. But what we have here in this sort of atonement imagery is God doing something to cover. And it's a more permanent type of covering. It's not the kind of covering like a fig leaf that would just rot and become completely insufficient. You have God doing something to cover them, taking the garments of skins and clothing them. So this is really um, an act of, of sovereign grace on the part of God to cover man's nakedness and shame. It's a sovereign act of, of atonement, really. That's exactly right, and that's, that's my next point here. It's the introduction of an innocent sacrifice to provide the covering. So can you start to you know, see how there's this prologue of God's redemptive plan unfolding here, where there is now all of a sudden introduced into a world where there was no death and there was no shedding of blood, this sacrifice of an innocent animal. And that, that sacrifice was for the sole purpose of God to provide a more suitable permanent covering for the nakedness and the shame. Um, From a sermon on this text, John MacArthur says it this way, God provides for man's physical clothing himself. God also covers them spiritually in this symbolic gesture. The entire work of salvation is prefigured here. It doesn't say that God found a sheep, sheared the sheep, wove some garments, and covered them. No, he covered them not with the wool taken from an animal, but with the skin of the animal, which means the animal had to die. God clothes the naked sinner, covering the sinner by the sacrifice of an innocent victim, providing atonement, satisfaction to his own required justice with a substitute. This introduces for the first time in Scripture the matter of atonement or covering of the sinner, 
through the death of an innocent substitute. This is the sovereign work of God. God chose the animal. God killed the animal. God took the skin of the animal and covered the sinners. This is the first death in the world. There had never been death before this. The first death is the death of an animal killed by God to cover sins, cover sinners. My, what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb slain by God before the foundation of the world. So this is a prologue, really. It's also a prologue to what becomes an Old Testament sacrificial system, where God's chosen people, basically as part of their worship and as part of their, uh, their really a, a foreshadowing of, of this, this ultimate atonement that Christ would satisfy, of this sacrificial system, um, where God required animal sacrifices in the Old Testament to really demonstrate the severity of sin, uh, to demonstrate the cost of rebellion against God, to show that death that sin to show the death that sin brings, and also to demonstrate this representation of the sacrifice of Christ, which would later come. So you see this beginning to be introduced here, and in fact, as you move forward in the text, you're going to see obviously in Genesis chapter four where Cain and Abel bring offerings to God, and Abel's sacrifice is actually an animal sacrifice, right? So this begins this progression here, even before um, the, the, the Old Testament law is given and the whole sacrificial system is, is memorialized or formalized amongst the, the nation of Israel. This is a bit of a prologue here. So you see this, these two principles beginning, and like I said, I'm, I'm not saying that these are, these are explicitly stated like we see now, in, in, in the New Testament, or even in Old Testament passages leading into the New Testament, but you see the implications of them coming out of the text, and certainly in the context, the larger context of Scripture, it certainly uh, makes sense and provides greater clarity as we look back on this, this portion of primeval history. So you see faith, and you see atonement, but then you also see something else that, you know, I, I obviously, this is not an insight that I just came up with myself. I... I had a lot of help here as I was reading and studying, but I don't think I, I don't think I would have ever um, looked at the text this way uh, without the, the aid of others. Um, but I think it's a very um, important and significant insight here from this section that as another element of salvation or God's saving purpose or God's redemptive plan, you see you see security in this text. You see God's pr- protection really in this text. In verse 22, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Let me stop right there. This is not an idea that that, um, man has become like one of us in that God knows evil the way man knows evil. The idea here is that God knows everything, and so for God, it's it's an outside-in kind of knowledge. For man, it's an inside-out kind of knowledge. Now man is intimately knowing evil. There is, and that the introduction of shame, for example, in light of their nakedness, the thoughts that began to flood their minds about their nakedness and, and just what that, what that led to in terms of the birth of a sin nature, if you will, um, from the inside out, whereas God's knowledge is obviously transcendent, but he is not um, intimately as familiar, he's not intimately uh, knowledgeable of evil in the same way that man was at that point. Yes, again, that, that we called it, uh, when we were looking at it in Genesis chapter 1, the divine deliberation in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, right? That same... It's a verification of the Trinity. 
it is. So Yeah, and, and, and as well, as we talked about before, um, you know, when they were, when, when Adam and Eve were given this command of not eating of the free, uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that, that set before them an, an understanding that, that one, one path was obedience and one path was disobedience. So there was a, an understanding there of, and, an, and, a, and a choice there. There was the freedom of, of choosing to sin or not to sin. And so implied in that is this, this knowledge of disobedience and defiance of God's word that turned into intimate knowledge of sin. That's right. Experiential knowledge. Understanding it. That's right. And of course, God's not claiming that kind of understanding here. But, but the idea here is that he, he, he acknowledges that there is there's this, this introduction of a new kind of, um, this is not really the best term, but a new kind of risk for man and woman. And it's the risk that, in light of this new knowledge that they have, as a result of them sinning and taking of this forbidden fruit, that there is a risk here that, he might reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And so, what would, if man in his state at that point, as fallen, as having an inherent now sin nature, uh, under, having wicked thoughts leading to wicked actions, the introduction of sin and all that entails for man, how would you characterize um, eternal life in that state. No way. <laughs> I mean, what's another way to look at eternal life in the state of complete sin? Eternal life is the absence of death. Well, but in, but in a, an eternal existence, what would you say? Hell. I mean, it's like it would be like hell, basically, right? So this idea of God securing them in this, even even in the midst of this this banishment from the garden that's about to take place. Even in the curses, as, as we had, as we looked at before, you see God's character and his nature of, of, of grace and mercy coming to bear here. Do you think they were eating from that tree before they did? I don't know. There's, there's uh, some people, I've, I've read some people would uh, say that it's possible. You, you get into real speculation here, but, you know, is, it was the, was the, was the fruit uh, life-giving insofar as you continued to eat it? And if you stopped eating it, it was no longer eternal life producing? I don't think that that would be the case because it speaks of particularly the, the knowledge of good and evil in the day that you eat of it. And so there's, there's a, seems to be from the context the idea that they had not partaken of that. But I mean, I don't know. It doesn't say one way or another. Um, but nonetheless, there is this, there is this, um, this risk that that uh, to risk to man and woman, to Adam and Eve, that God is securing them from 
So he says that, that the risk is that they would take the free fruit of the tree of life and eat it, and they would live forever. And live forever in a state of fallen, sinful wickedness, basically. A full knowledge of sin, and live that way forever. So God protects man from what would be this worst possible outcome, this eternal life in sin and shame, with no hope for ultimate deliverance. Now, now stay with me here for a second. So verse 23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out, of, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then he goes on, or this is an allusion back to uh, verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So he says here, he put them out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Same reference to the ground from which he was taken. They're going to now be put out of the garden to work that ground, hearkening back to this curse that, that befell man, where he will work the ground by the sweat of his face until he returns to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust and to dust you shall return. So even in the fulfillment of the curse, even in this fulfillment of the curse, which included physical death, a return to the dust from which man came, there is this protection of God, the securing of man's deliverance from eternal judgment. This is a vivid physical picture of what is a really profound spiritual principle of salvation taught even by Jesus himself. Now think about this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 to 26 says, For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then he says again in John twelve twenty five, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So even the principle of dying to live is being introduced here. And it, the Apostle Paul himself said, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, right? So even in this banishment from paradise, there is a protective work of God going, a securing work of God going on here. That's, that's really profound and, and, and amazing when you think about it. Because the, the alternative would be an eternity in, in eternal physical life as a sinner with no hope of deliverance. Now, the next uh, element here, this is the last one that we'll look at, is this element of hope. And this, again, uh, I, this, is, this is me borrowing from, from uh, John MacArthur's um, sermon on this, but I just found it really a really um, fascinating and encouraging way to look at what is otherwise um, not a happy part of the narrative. Uh, it says in verse 23 of chapter 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. In verse 24, it, it becomes even more emphatic It says, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he sent him out of the garden, but then it goes a step further and says, he he basically kicked him to the curb. It's a very emphatic, like, 
removal, banishment, uh, uh, just a forceful driving him out of the garden. So the nature of the verb, the verbs here is one of rebuke and rebuffing and banishment. But, but if you think about the principle uh, behind this, uh, and, and just really we can talk more about a little bit more about this, this idea of, of the cherubim and the garden in the east and, and all that, just li- listen, to, listen to this section of, of MacArthur's sermon on this. Again, we're talking about hope here. He says in verse 23, he sent them out to cultivate the ground. Adam was to live for nine, over 900 years in sorrow, sickness, suffering, temptation, living under the curse. He was to live his whole life feeling the burden of sin, feeling the weight of the fall, feeling the curse, working by the sweat of his brow. He was to live that whole time being the mother of all the living, bearing children painfully. There was conflict in the marriage as she was fighting against the authority of her husband and he was trying to subdue her. The sinner then is left to suffer in hope. He goes on. They were outside the garden of beauty and delights, this paradise. They were put out at the east of the garden on the east side. Paradise was to the west. Not where the sun rose, but where the sun set. Every day for the rest of Adam's life, 900 plus years, as he watched the sun go down, it was a reminder that he was not allowed back into the paradise of God. Every sunset of every day would remind them of what they had lost and could never regain in this life. It was a constant reminder. And the suffering of their lives expanded and expanded. Their pain, their son killed his brother, their grandchildren, disastrous. And every sunset, they would think about the paradise they had lost and they would live in hope. The cherubim, the guardians of the holiness of God, guardians of the throne of God, are stationed at the front of paradise. These angels were the guards of the presence of God. And every time the sinners, Adam and Eve, looked and saw the cherubim and the flaming sword as the sun went down in the evening, they realized they were outside paradise. But they lived in hope. They lived in hope that one day they would enter the true paradise of God. And I think, MacArthur says, that hope burned bright in their heart. Why would God make them live that way for a long time? Why? Because hope is a purifying reality. 1 John 3 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Hope sanctifies. Hope purifies. So the, the imagery that he's conjuring up here from the text is that being put out of the garden gave them a sense that there's that they, they know that there is a garden and that they know that there is hope. They live in this hope, even in the midst of suffering, that they might be restored one day. And if you think about the idea of hope in the midst of suffering for us as believers, listen to Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, again, the context here is the whole issue of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Justification by faith. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame 
because God love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And when you think about the nature of hope that comes to the believer through the perseverance of trial and suffering and pain, some of which is self-inflicted, much of which is part and parcel to living in a fallen and sinful world, the reality of this principle in the life of God's people is profound. And I can only kind of add to this by giving a little bit of a personal testimony of this regard. Um, I, as I, I grew up in a, a Christian home and um, um, really took a lot of pride as I was growing up in my family and in sort of our reputation, if you will, uh, in the community. And then um, sophomore year, high school-ish, uh, things started to kind of unravel with my family. And my, ultimately, my parents' marriage dissolved. And my dad had owned a business for a lot of years, and, and we had plenty of things. I had plenty of stuff. I had plenty of goodies as a young, young guy and put a lot of trust in those things. Um, but all, that, all those things and even the, the, the foundations of the family that I grew up with began to kind of unravel and crumble around me. And I will never forget, uh, I went off to the University of Texas at Austin my freshman year of college. And, um, and this whole season from sophomore year all the way through this point in time that I'm, I'm getting to now was, um, was really, really difficult for me. I mean, I, I, was, I was really, really reeling um, from it all. Um, and, I mean, I was fortunate that I had some people coming around me, so it wasn't like I was totally isolated, but I, I really struggled through this period of time. And I'll never forget, uh, I, was, um, I was in my dorm room one evening, and I got a call from my dad, and he was calling me to just let me know that the divorce was final. So it's, it's done. So there was this kind of this period of time where there was this back and forth and attempts to reconcile and then separation. And so that went on for a few years. But this point where I was up at school and I was, I, I was, I was isolated at that point in time because my roommates that I went up there from high school with had kind of gone off into um, a lot of worldliness. And so I was like trying to figure out who I was going to be the rest of my life kind of thing, what kind of man I was going to be. Um, so I was in my room I actually lived in a, a suite, joining rooms, and there was no one there but me. All my roommates were gone, three roommates. They were all gone. And I got off the phone with my dad, and I was just, I really was at a low point, and I just kind of fell apart. And um, I, I, by the way, what I'm about to tell you, I don't advocate as a method for, for dealing with suffering or even studying Scripture, okay? But I did go and grab my Bible off the shelf after a little bit of, of sort of laying on the bed and, and sobbing and whatnot. And I started thumbing through, and I found myself, I didn't like open it up, and there I was at Romans chapter 5. But I did kind of thumb through, and I just, I landed here for some reason. I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, go there first, I don't think, but I, as I recall, but I ended up here and just began reading. And this passage of Scripture, almost, almost immediately, completely, elevated my soul. And, and what, what I felt as, as a very young man with, with very limited experience, with not a lot of wisdom and not a lot of, of life experience and not a lot of knowing how to figure things out going forward, 
just in that moment, in the midst of what at that point in time in my life was tremendous suffering and a feeling of, what am I going to do, hopelessness, God used this promise of the, the purpose of suffering and trial and what it produces to not just give me a promise of hope, to actually literally infuse hope into my soul at that point. And I will never, ever, ever forget that moment. It was a transformative moment in my spiritual journey forever and ever and ever. So when I think about this idea of, of banishment from the garden, and I think about how God produces genuine hope in the life and heart of genuine believers, is it not indeed through trial and suffering, self-inflicted, consequence of sin trial, as well as out, outside us, but a consequence of the fall that's raining down all around us, kinds of trials, producing that kind of eternal hope. That's the kind of hope that I think that MacArthur's trying to draw out of this passage here. And what's amazing about this section of Scripture is that you get to see how God is completely sovereign and utterly in control of all things, even in the midst of a time and period in human history where it looks the most grim and the most dark and the most hopeless. And if you think about the character and nature of God, and of course we have the benefit of more revelation, right? We have the scriptures that take us all the way through to the end of Revelation, right? You think about the nature and character of God as we understand from Scripture and as He's revealed Himself. This is who He is. This is exactly who He is. He is a sovereign, holy, righteous lawgiver and gracious, loving, pursuing of sinners, Savior and Father. That's our God. And we see this through this initial history of the world and of humanity in Genesis 1 through 3. Aren't you grateful for the word of God? Let's pray.